0: Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning service, which is a um, very special service today, baptismal service. Very pleased to be baptizing uh, Gregory Kratz and Hannah Law. Very special day for them. So welcome to all your uh, friends and family who've come for this special occasion to support, to encourage them and support them. On this day, I understand there's people from all over the place, including a large a group from the, the Globe Church in, the, in London as well. Welcome to you guys up there. It's, um, and welcome to family and friends who are gathered. Uh, welcome back also to Steve Matilda, back from Canada after a couple of months' furlough over there. So it's great to have you back. Um, and welcome to anybody who's been on holiday. I hope you've had a good time of rest and refreshment. It's great to have you back with us. Also, sorry to be saying goodbye this week uh, to uh, Josh and Helen and Rafi. who we'll are back to uh, Uh, to Egypt this week. It's been great having them for this uh, past month or so. I'm going to read from Psalm 100 as we start our service because this is a a call, an invitation to, to worship and tells us what we should be doing when we gather and why we should be doing it. Psalm 100 says this, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name for the Lord is good and his love endures forever his faithfulness continues through all generations let's pray Father God we thank you for your goodness and your unending love and faithfulness thank you that you've shown your love for us by sending your son Jesus Christ to die for us so that we may know your forgiveness and be adopted into your family. Thank you for Hannah and Gregory's desire to be baptized this morning and profess their faith in Jesus and share the difference that he has made to their lives. We pray today will be a wonderful blessing to them and that their witness will be an encouragement to to all of us. So we do pray this morning that you would accept our praise and thanksgiving, that you would help us to know more of your love and faithfulness so that we can grow in our faith in you and live lives that are pleasing and honouring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it's great to be able to baptise Gregory and Hannah this morning, um, but I recognise that if you're a visitor here this morning, you may wonder why we, we do this, um, particularly why we uh, have full immersion into a pool of water. And the children here as well may wonder what is this all about. So let me just briefly explain uh, why we do this and what it really means. And why do we baptize? Um, well, there's three main reasons why we do it. Uh, the first of those is that because Jesus told us to do it. Um, just before Jesus ascended into heaven to be with his father, he said to his disciples, he said, go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus told us to do it, but secondly, because Jesus himself was baptized. Uh, He didn't really need to be baptized, because he was perfect. He is without sin. Um, So he was obviously setting us uh, an example. And so... If he thought it was important to do, then of course so should would we. thirdly, because the early church did it, Uh, when Peter preached to the crowds on the day of Pentecost, and they realized they need to be forgiven for uh, all that they had done, they asked him, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what is the purpose or the meaning of it? Um, well, there's, there's nothing magical about it. You don't become a Christian when you are baptized. A baptism is a symbol of something that's already taken place in the heart of the one being baptized. And it symbolizes two things. Um, first of all, that we are made clean. Not on the outside, um, but on the inside. By forgiving us our sins, Jesus has made us clean. And secondly, we're given new life. In the same way that Jesus died and rose to life, we too die to our old way of living and rise to new life with Jesus as our Lord. And that's why we baptize by complete immersion, because the going under the water represents the the end or the death of an old life, and the coming up out of the water represents the beginning or the resurrection to new life. So it's a great blessing to to those being baptized, um, as well as to all of us who believe in Jesus. uh, We're reminded in a very visual way of what Jesus has done for us. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a, a personal God and that you have made yourself known to us. Through the beauty of your creation, through the truth of your word. Through the person of your son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and gave up the glory of heaven to come down as a human being to this world. Thank you that he came to save this world from the consequences of sin. Father, we are sorry for the sin that is still present in our lives. As we look back on this past week, we are sorry that we've been guilty of of pride, greed, jealousy, impatience, gossiping, lying, lust, and many other things that displease you. Forgive us, we pray, and help us in the power of your spirit to focus not on our own desires, but on the needs of others, and to have the mindset of Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for your mercy on this broken world. We pray for those who are struggling with relationship breakdown. That they may know your love. With financial worries or health concerns, that they may know your peace. With grief, that they may know your comfort. Or with addictive behavior, that they may know your freedom. We continue to pray for the situation in Ukraine. We pray that you would bring an end to the war so that families can be reunited. People return to their homes. We pray for our missionaries, we pray for Josh, Helen, and Rafi as they prepare to return to Egypt. Help them as a family to cope with the heat, to make good progress in their language learning, and to continue to build good relationships and share their faith with people in the community, particularly for Helen as she seeks to befriend the, the women there. We thank you for the furlough that Steve and Matilda have had in Canada. The opportunities to meet up with their church, their supporters, and Steve's side of the family. As well as the time they've had with their daughter Esther and her family before they return to Papua New Guinea. Although we thank you for all those who've managed to enjoy some holiday over the summer. That would have provided physical and emotional rest and spiritual refreshment. And as we prepare for a new term here in the church, we pray for all the various leaders of ministries as they seek to regather their teams, to organize their programs and care for their members. Give them grace and wisdom and a dependence on you, we pray. So Lord, bless the rest of our time together this morning. Before we come to the uh, baptism later on, pray for John as he reads from your word, for Saab as he preaches, and for us all as we listen, that we would hear you speaking to us. And that you would change our lives through the work of your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. John Lilly is going to bring us our Bible reading from John chapter 9. Before Saab comes up to preach.
1: The readings from uh, John John chapter 9. The whole of chapter 9. If you have a church Bible, it's on uh, page 1075. A wonderful story, a true story of how uh, Jesus uh, brought uh, sight to the blind, which he's been doing ever since, and including for Hannah and Gregory. As he went along he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. "'Wash in the pool of Siolam.'" This word means sent. So the man went, washed, and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, "'Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg?' Some claimed that he was. Others said, "'No, he only looks like him.'" But he himself insisted, "'I am the man.'" How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he now sees? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can now, how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, well, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you don't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, well now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. John, thank you so much for
2: reading for us. Before we come to look at this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much uh, for your word. We thank you for the certainty of the things that we have been taught. Father, I pray that by your spirit, uh, you would uh, open our eyes. uh, That you would quicken our minds and soften our hearts. Ready us to hear you speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, please do keep your Bibles open. It'd be a great help to me uh, if you're able to follow along uh, with me this morning. Now, this morning we've heard uh, some amazing testimonies of, uh, of Hannah and of Gregory. Uh, two people who have decided publicly before friends and family that they are now living for Christ. That Christ defines who they are. So let me ask you all a question this morning. What defines you. What defines you? What are you living for? We're continuing a short series through the book of John and the Gospels are eyewitness testimonies of the life of Jesus, revealing who he is and the purpose of his earthly ministry. And through the Gospels, uh, we're presented with Jesus as he is. And last week, we saw that Jesus uh, took for himself uh, the divine name, claiming to be no less than God himself. And people who at that time professed belief in him uh, revealed themselves actually not to be believers at all. In fact, they revealed themselves to be enemies of Christ, seeking to kill Jesus. They would not accept Christ's own disclosure of who he is they would not be defined by jesus rather they sought to kill him and this morning we come to another another encounter that jesus has with a man who's been born blind and the gospel writer john wants us to see that this man did come to have his life defined by christ And here we are, 2,000 years later, and this morning we have had the testimony of two more people who are saying publicly that their lives are defined by Christ. Two people who are saying that only a life defined by Christ gives them meaning and purpose and fulfilment. Now, there's a lot in the text that we had read for us this morning, but I want essentially to use the passage to meditate and reflect on the last three words of verse 38. How how was it this man who'd been born blind was able to say, then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He worshipped him. So with that in mind, let's dig into the passage. uh, And I would like us to see... Uh, three things. Firstly, that we're all defined by something. Uh, the trials of this man who'd been born blind and the response of the man who had been born blind. So firstly, we are all defined by something. Uh, John tells us that uh, as Jesus encounters the man uh, in verse 1, we're told that he'd been born blind. The man we're told has been born blind blind from birth. He's been unable to see anything. And what does that mean for this man born blind? All his life, he's been living in utter darkness. He's never seen the trees blossom. He's never seen the splendor of the stars filling the night sky. He's never seen the beauty of the riot of colors at sunset and at sunrise. He's never seen his mother's smile. He's been robbed of all visible beauty. He's been unable to work. He has no economic power. And we see in verse 8 that he's begging. He's pitied by those who pass by and he's utterly reliant on charity. There's no way that he's able to lift himself out of that poverty. He's been robbed of all self-dignity and self-respect. He'll never marry. It's unlikely that any woman would want to be bound in marriage to a man who couldn't provide for her. No marriage means no children. He's been robbed of family and he's been robbed of the hope of children. The man's blindness completely defines him. He's bound by it. He's limited by it. He's shaped by it. His blindness defines him. And what about us here today? Uh, We can see how Jesus giving sight to a man born blind is a great illustration of how Jesus is the light in that man's life. But what about us here today? What about the world that we are in now? That man was defined by not being able to see. And for us... Maybe not physically blind, but perhaps blind to Jesus. Uh, If you're here as a non-believer today, then Jesus says you are spiritually blind. If you're here today as someone who would say that you are a Christian, but you won't submit to Christ in all areas of your life, then Jesus says to you that you too are spiritually blind. As such, blindness isn't physical, but it's every bit as devastating as if you had been physically blind. Now, you might ask, well, how can can you say that I'm blind? The man who was born blind, his physical blindness defined who he was. So my question this morning is, what are we allowing to define us? Perhaps we're allowing our career to define us. Uh, Please don't mishear me. The Bible says that work is a good thing. And we're called to work hard, we're called to work diligently, and we're called to work well. But, but, what if we allow our career to define us? For us to seek our ultimate validation in our next promotion, uh, the next deal, the next bonus, or the big golden goodbye what are we laying down in our lives because we want to prosper in our career? Now, before I was a Christian, I know that I sacrificed all manner of things for career, sports days, parents' evenings, dinners with friends and with family, birthday celebrations. It's possible for a good thing like work to define us. We've just come through exam season as well, haven't we? Uh, what if it's the academic success of our children that defines us? Uh, Don't mishear me. Children are a special gift. And it's right that we should want the best for them. But, but, when the only good things for them that we can see are good grades and university places, then we'll sacrifice time, relationships, money, energy, all at the altar of academic success will be forever defined by the university that our children went to or didn't go to. It's possible for a good thing like education to define us. And we can do that analysis in all areas of our lives. Any area, good or bad. It might be your looks, your social standing, or where you live, your ancestry, your spouse, or your rivalries. Your jealousies, your anger, and your betrayals. The list goes on and on. All manner of things can define us. Whatever it is, if it defines you, then you are blind to Jesus. Because only one thing can have that place of ultimate allegiance in your life. Only one thing can define you. And if it defines you and it isn't Jesus, you are blind to him. But this man, this man went from blindness to belief, and he did that through trial. And that brings us to our second point. The trials of the blind man. Uh, The gospel writer uh, tells us that the man who's been healed finds himself in the midst of a theological and social storm. It all starts really well for him. You can imagine the man who's been healed, leaping around, telling everyone he can see now that he has indeed been healed. You can imagine, can't you, the joy at seeing people smile, uh, putting faces to voices, seeing the majesty of nature. And you can just imagine the TikTok videos of this man leaping around are going viral. Uh, The man is taken to the religious elite and because the people want their opinion. Uh, if you like, they're calling for a VAR check on the healing. Uh, the man's on the pitch with obvious sight, but everybody is waiting for that VAR check. To start with, the Pharisees, well, they're divided, aren't they? See that in verse 16. So their first attack is to rule that the healing was offside. Jesus did the miracle on Sunday. Sunday trading rules apply, therefore the healing doesn't count. But clearly, the man born blind can still see. So the Pharisees go to plan B. They call expert witnesses, the man's parents. By this stage, however, the Pharisees have decided that Jesus is guilty. And to ensure that they get the result they hope for, we see in verse 22 that they nobble the witnesses telling them that if they side with their son, they'll be in trouble. So mum and dad do the decent thing and reject their son to save their own skin. So the Pharisees, thinking that they've painted this man into a corner, now call him back and invite him to reject Jesus. But the man born blind who now has sight simply will not let it go. He debates with them, and his argument is logical, And it's compelling. I was born blind, he says. But now I can see. There's never been anything like this in all of history. How can this not be from God? Having been outwitted, the Pharisees insult the man that's been born blind and demand that that he must leave their presence. He's violating, if you like, their safe space. They cancel him, he's no-platformed, ejected from the university, and he loses that lucrative book deal. He's cold-shouldered by the elites, and he's cast out. Although bordering on the comedic, the encounter that the man born blind has also makes for the most sobering of reads, doesn't it? As Christians, uh, we too will be surrounded by people who say that we have it all wrong uh, they'll bring in witnesses to testify against us, and we will face the pressure to deny Jesus, to abandon Jesus. And these are real dangers for all of us. They're real pressures for the two who were baptized here this morning, Hannah, in a place of learning with the intellectual elites of our day, she will receive pushback on her decision to be defined by Christ. Gregory, in the hurly-burly of high finance, will face pressure to relegate Jesus to things that the sophisticated London elite feel to be more worthy than Jesus. So they desperately need our prayers. They desperately need our support. They desperately need our encouragement. So why don't you undertake to pray for them regularly? Or write to them from time to time to encourage them in their walk with Jesus. Hannah, Gregory, hold fast to what you've been taught about Jesus. Seek to be in his word every day. Grow in your love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Look to have the same zeal and steadfastness as the man who was born blind. Be unabashed in your devotion and worship of Jesus. And that same encouragement to each and every one of us here this morning. So the man born blind is now found by Jesus. And we see that the man born blind is no longer defined by his blindness, but he's defined by Jesus, the man's response. Take a look with me at verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found them, when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The man born blind, at the end of verse 38, John tells us that he worshipped Jesus. Because Jesus said that he's the son of man. Well, the early gospel readers would have been right on the edge of their seats. Uh, To us, without Jewish heritage or without a clear grasp on all the Old Testament, we can miss the power and the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, One of the Old Testament prophets, Daniel, in chapter 7, receives a vision from God. In that vision, a person is presented before God the Father. To that person, all power, all authority, all dominion is given. He is anointed as the one true king of kings. This person This son of man has all the prerogatives of God himself. And here, Jesus asks if the man born blind believes in the son of man. Tell me who he is that I may believe, the blind man asks. Or the man who was born blind asks. And when Jesus says that he is the son of man, the one standing there. Professes belief. And then he worships. Now... It might seem like a small thing to close the encounter between Jesus and the man born blind with, but it is the most amazing thing. Uh, the people of Israel had an extremely high view of God. Uh, so high that the thought of God being located in creation, confined in humanity, was it was for them it was utterly beyond belief. Uh, the Eastern religions, by contrast, believed that God was everywhere inside creation, in the mountains, in the oceans, in the birds, in the creatures. So the thought for the Eastern religions of worshipping a person or a location is not beyond belief for them. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum, for the Greco-Romans, the if you like the Western take on spirituality today, uh, was that the, the gods were also within creation. And they were people. Broken and sometimes unpleasant, but people nonetheless. So for them, to worship people wasn't unusual. But this was absolutely not the case for the people of Israel. They understood God to be outside and above creation, separate from it. The God that they worshipped was so utterly holy, so high, so powerful, that God could not be contained in a person. They would worship God and God alone, nothing less. So the Jews were the last people on the planet who would believe that God could be confined in creation or in humanity. They would worship only the one true God. And to have John tell us that this man, once born blind, who received his sight, worshipped Jesus. It's an utterly extraordinary statement. It is him shouting, Jesus is God. Just as amazing as that is the fact that Jesus receives the worship. The man worships Jesus, and Jesus <laughs> essentially says, Yep, that's right. Yes, that's right. Now the Bible is is, is littered with examples where heavenly beings appear and people fall down in front of them to worship them and these heavenly creatures all say, "No, no, 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 don't do that, get up, get up, I'm a creature just like you. But here, Jesus takes the worship as the right response to who he is. Jesus takes the worship that is due to God alone. Jesus makes the unambiguous claim to be God. The man born blind used to have blindness define who he was. Now he worships at the feet of Jesus. Now he's defined by Jesus. I asked you all a question as we opened this morning what defines you? Another way to phrase that question is what do you worship? What do you worship? Uh, The man born blind worshiped Jesus. What about you? What are you worshipping? You may be here this morning and thinking that all this talk of worship is all a bit primitive. It's a bit superstitious even. Perhaps you think that you're quite enlightened. And that worship is something that, well, that's just for the religious folk. But we all worship worship. The only question is, what will we worship? In his commencement address to Kenyan University, the novelist David Foster Wallace, uh, who wasn't a believer, uh, was reflecting on the subject of how do you live well in the world? And he concluded that worship is something that we all do. We're made to worship. And he reiterated the point, it, it is not will we worship or not, But what will we worship? And he said this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. And the compelling reason for worshipping God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life... You will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Did you hear that? Did you hear what that secular man had to say? He recognizes that we are built, all of us, for worship. That worship is the default setting of every human heart, that everyone, believer or not, will worship something. Everyone here in this place, watching online, we will all worship something. But whatever we worship, wherever you tap your ultimate meaning in life, if it isn't Jesus, David Foster Wallace says, and I think he's right, whatever it is, if it's not Jesus, it will eat you alive. But worshiping Jesus is different. It will not eat you alive, but it will give you real life. Jesus said in, or John writes this in verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. See, at the heart of the Christian message is the truth that God has created all things. And he's created us. You and me. To be in a living relationship with him. But we've rebelled. We've turned away from God. Rather than worship God, we've chosen to worship the things that he's given us. And that's caused our relationship with God to be broken. Broken beyond our ability to repair. But what we see in Jesus is not that jesus came that first time to judge humanity for its rebellion no the amazing good news is that jesus came not to bring judgment but to bear judgment jesus came to pay the price of our rebellion against god to take that on himself so that if we believe in him if we trust in him you and i we are free See, Jesus was the only one who loved God with all his heart, with all his mind, soul and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. He was the only one who deserved to hear his father say, well done, good and faithful servant, come into your father's house. But instead of the light of God's face shining upon him, Jesus took the darkness that was rightly ours. As Jesus was crucified, darkness fell on the land for three hours Judgment, the judgment of God fell on Jesus. The judgment that you and I deserve. Jesus died in our place. And if we trust in Jesus, trust that he has paid the price of our rebellion, we are free. We are made right with God himself. No longer defined by the things of the world. If we will but trust in Jesus... We will receive a warm welcome as God's son. And we'll receive that as a gift. Not because of anything we've done. Not because of what God has done. Sorry, but because of what God has done in and through Christ. A free gift if we would but receive it. John Newton, the 18th century slave trader, had a life that was defined by selling human cargo. And in a violent storm on the ocean, fearful that his boat would sink, he cried out to God for rescue. And that evening, John Newton met Jesus. He was rescued from that physical storm and he was rescued from his rebellion against God. He realized that salvation came not by getting his life right, not by getting himself ready. But salvation came because Jesus gave up his life, to pay the price of our rebellion. An unmerited gift. And in his words, words which we will sing after this talk, he says that it saved a wretch like me. It was amazing grace. And his life afterwards was defined by Jesus and worship of him. And that gift of salvation, of being made right with God, is held out to anyone Anyone who would believe. And if you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Jesus, well, can I ask you, what's stopping you from trusting in Him? If you want to know more about Jesus, uh, then do please pick up one of these John's Gospels on the way out and read the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. It's a short read. Do grab one of those on your way out. Or have a chat with me. I'd love to have a chat with you about that. So let's close this morning uh, by bringing to mind the question that we opened with. What defines you? What are you worshipping? And that question will come up at the end of our service this morning, do use the time after the service to chat with uh, with people around you about that question. But for now, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much uh, for this uh, account of the man who was miraculously healed. Father, thank you that in and through the Lord Jesus, uh, that we can be made right with you. Father, help us to trust in that truth. Help us by your spirit and through your word to stand firm on that truth. And help us to have the courage to live for you, to worship you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. That does indeed bring us uh, to the end of our service this morning. Uh, It's been great that you've been uh, able to be with us. Uh, If the Lord's spoken to you this evening or you have questions, um, do pray with the people who are around you. Yeah, please do pray. Take the opportunity to pray before you go. Um, And, uh, yeah, do join us for tea, cakes, and coffee in the back room uh, afterwards. Uh, It has been fabulous, hasn't it, to be here to encourage uh, both Hannah and Gregory Uh, as they've uh, publicly professed their faith and their desire to follow the Lord Jesus. Uh, So uh, to close, let's uh, just use a a bit of uh, Romans uh, chapter five, uh, where Paul writes this. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So let me just uh, pray for Hannah and for Gregory. Father, we do thank you for these wonderful truths of peace. Uh, that we have because of what you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus free to us but one at such a great cost our father we pray for Hannah and for gregory for their journey of faith in you that we pray that by your spirit you would at all times fan into flame their love for the lord jesus speak to them through your word and we pray that you would allow their lives to bear much fruit for your glory help them to stand firm holding fast to the word of life and not straying from your path, neither to the left nor to the right. We pray that as as they journey on, that they might have their eyes fixed on you, that their lives would be marked with a deep joy of close fellowship with you. We pray that the work of salvation won for them by you would always remain at the very heart of their lives. We pray that your love for them and their worship of you would define who they are then help us as their church family and the churches where you've planted them currently to be a blessing and encouragement to them through prayer, through word and deed. Bless them with good Christian friends to journey with, to spur them on when they are tired, to carry them when they're hurting and to rejoice with them in seasons of plenty. In Jesus' name,
0: amen.